restaurant unstoppable episode 815 with chris vio honestly i've been struggling with that for the past few years of people seeing more in me than i see in myself and i think that's part of what i'm trying to open up to and explore of who am i and what is it that these people are seeing in me that i can explore more are you ready for it factors success stories failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge then join eric cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable does your hospitality extend beyond the four walls of your business well if it doesn't it could with Ovation. So what is Ovation? Ovation is an omni-channel two-question survey that gets happy guests to leave positive reviews and unhappy guests to chat instantly with you or your team to resolve the issue in real time before they leave a bad review or they never come back. And with this channel of communication, you can easily see trends of what is driving positive and negative experiences. Not only does it improve your communication and your relationship with your guest. It also is a tool to drive revenue. You can drive revenue with third to first party ordering conversion. You can drive revenue with a rainy day text blast. You can also drive revenue when your guests automatically download your loyalty app. To learn more, head over to www.ovationup.com slash unstoppable. And when you use your link, you can get 2000 free text messages to help you start getting more feedback, reviews, and revenue. Again, that's ovationup.com slash unstoppable. A lot of people are talking about Restaurant 365, and that's probably because they are the only cloud-based all-in-one restaurant management software with restaurant-specific accounting, inventory, scheduling, and payroll plus HR. Restaurant 365 is perfect for the multi-location restaurant business. Their customers have seen 5% decrease in food and beverage costs because they have access to more actionable data. Restaurant 365 is the king of integrations with over 90 integrations with the POS, including hundreds of vendors and thousands of banks, so you have a truly connected system. No more man Managing out of multiple systems. Lastly, Restaurant 365 empowers your management team with real-time P&L with access to check-level detail. No more waiting on your accounting teams for P&Ls weeks later. To learn more, head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable. And if you use that link, you will save 50% off your first month. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. 
What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great episode for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support. There's a few ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody you know who's aspiring to be a better version of themselves today than they were yesterday, and you can come join the network and be a part of the conversation. So today we're talking to Chef Chris Vio. Chef Chris Vio came on my radio Radar by way of Chef Keith Saracen, who worked with Chris and partnered with Chris uh, at the Greenleaf in Milford. We'll get more about that later. But uh, basically, Chef Chris Vio is the son of Haitian immigrants. Uh, he grew up between Massachusetts and New Hampshire, went to Johnson & Wales University, graduated, and joined the team over at Duwaw. I'm always afraid I'm saying that incorrectly, uh, where he worked under chef Chris Coombs and really developed himself as a professional, helped open restaurants throughout Massachusetts and New Hampshire before partnering with Chris, uh, chef Keith Saracen, uh, with the farmer's dinner. And uh, man, I love what they do with the farmer's dinner. We really unpackaged that today in the, the strategy behind, or not just, I don't know if it was the strategy, but the, the, at least the, the, the side effects of being so involved with your community, getting your name out there before opening. And, uh, today, Chris Vio is the chef owner of the Green Leaf in Milford in Culture, which is also in Milford. Really great stuff came out of today's conversation. I know you're going to like it. Here it is. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the executive chef and founder of the Greenleaf Culture in Unsum. Did I say it correctly? That's right. You know, beautiful <laughs> chef Chris Vio. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable? Super today? unstoppable, man. Today's yes. a new day. Yes, I cannot wait to get into your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? You know, I always like to say, "Live life, work, eat, and play like there's no tomorrow." Live life, work. Eat and play like there's no tomorrow. That's right. Why is that your quote? Why why'd you go with that one? Today? You know, I I often exclaim to the staff and everything like I, I go by that can't stop won't stop mentality and everything, mm. and I'm always on the grind. Um, but I do kind of pull back and know that there is a time to work. There's a dedicated time to play and experience life on itself. Yeah, and I'm uh, I don't know if I told you this, but just before walking in here, I was on the phone with Keith Saracen. Where are you? I was like, Keith, I'm going into my interview with Chris. I was like, What do you got for me? <laughs> are you trying uh, to dig the dirt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like, He is the hardest working dude out there. He's the one thing he said about you, uh, and he's just starting to like. Grow grasp that work-life balance and that's what i'm hearing from that quote is that safe to say it really is it really is awesome so i can't wait to pull back the layers on that when we get to like real time where we are today but where does it make sense to start sharing your story let's dive back and i'm probably going to jump around a little bit yeah man from my little bit of my past but um the real introduction for me to cooking and my first food memories i would say and and this is a memory that i always enjoy sharing is my mom would have me sit on the ground um, and grind herbs and spices with a mortar and pestle okay. to help prepare the marinades or the spice blend for dishes that she was making for our family meals. Okay. Um, and for some reason... That's a tool in the kitchen, that, by the way. It really is. It really <laughs> yeah. is. And just now I started bringing it up into this yeah. kitchen and some of the staff even here is starting to play with it. And I think it's something that they haven't used before. Either. It's everywhere in the world, too. It just, really is. Yeah. called different names yeah. and different applications and everything. Sorry so it's, it's a beautiful thing. No, we're going to go back and forth all, <laughs> yeah. this, all the time on this. So, um, yeah, so that's one of my most vivid, vivid food memories. And then fast forward to high school and graduating from senior year, my mom was like, okay, what are you going to do with your life? And I was like, 
I don't know. You tell me, right? (laughs) So she's like, you really need to figure this out. And I just had that one connection back to that one little food memory. And I think that's what triggered the the spark of wanting to pursue a career in the culinary industry. Um, So I applied to a couple couple different um, colleges and um, one community. One was Johnson & Wales. And of course, Johnson & Wales had a free application. So I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to apply. I got in and I I told her, I was like, listen, mom, I guess I'm going to Johnson & Wales. I think we need to give a nod to your parents because it's something I picked up after 800 plus interviews is that immigrant families tend to take the opportunities that are presented in this country so much further than most Absolutely. people. So what were some of the lessons that your parents instilled in you at a, at a young age? Right. Um, work as hard as you can yeah. and make sure that you make time to dedicate for your family. Yeah. And I mentioned that you you were from Haiti, but you, you were born and raised in the States. Yes, correct. Okay. I, was, I was born and raised in Massachusetts. Okay. So when did your parents get here? So they both got here at different times. My mom, I think, was 17, and my father was 18 or 19. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it. Um, is there any other lessons to pull from like just the, the hard work and eth- work ethic that they instilled in you? Be the best person you can be. Yeah. And it's, I mean, this is one difficult conversation, and of course, it's been happening throughout the past couple of years now, is um, race and everything, and just being, being mindful of being present where you are. I won't lie, man. Like growing up in New Hampshire, yep. I, I know, I don't know. We, when did you come to New Hampshire? When I was 15 and a half. Yeah. yeah. Not the most diverse state. Uh, no, not, not really. Great people. <laughs> yeah. Great people. Not the most diverse state. Of so course. I can only imagine what it would have been like. I, I remember growing up in my, I'm from Exeter. Okay. I think there's, I can probably name every African American That's usually the, the on my hand. I can count them on my hand. Yep. Right. And it's just, it's, what does that do though? When there's just not a lot of diversity, why is that something that we really need to address? Well, you know, that's something that I'm kind of opening up to now more, especially over the past couple of years, is exploring the diverse cultures and really represent representing our culture because it is important to share those stories because without sharing those, then it, it just gets lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking for what it was like to grow up as a, a white kid in New Hampshire and meeting people from like diverse backgrounds, we only know what we know from TV, right? right. So like there's just so much that's just wrong with perceptions when it comes to other people's races and i think it's important to have these conversations as awkward as they are right right? because we we need to learn more about each other right it's so true what are your thoughts as i'm saying that well you know without us opening up like us as the black community and sharing our stories then of course nobody's ever going to learn from it yeah and having the opportunity to do that over the past couple years has been a blessing to be able to open up and have the community around listen yeah especially in areas that aren't typically as diverse as areas that we might have come from and wanting to come to these areas and know that we are going to be accepted and be treated the same way that um, all others around are being treated is a huge motivational factor for us and wanting to be able to open up and share our cultures, share our history, share our past. Yeah. I mean, is there a a story that you can think of that is worth sharing right now in this moment to kind of help towards this like global movement? Sure thing. Yeah. Um, I've opened up only recently on my Facebook page after the George Floyd murders and everything and and using my platform to be able to express how I felt. And nobody's really heard that side of me before. Um, And it's just going thinking back into like high school and college and thinking of like it's it's like minuscule bullying and things like that. But people saying, oh, you're the you're the whitest black person I know. And I'm like, I struggled for a long time trying to figure out what, what does that mean? And it goes back to the conversation that you were just saying about the perception of who or what black people should be like, act like, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And we don't need to stay here all day because that's not why we're here, but I think it's worth bringing to the conversation because the, 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 the conversation is being had and it needs to continue to be had until things are perceptions are 
corrected. Right. Right. So thank you for going there. And um, when you got the Johnson and Wales, because that's where you end up going. I don't know if you mentioned it. You went to Johnson and Wales. Yep. Is there were there any uh, professors there that really made an imprint on you as far as transforming the man you are today? Yes, absolutely. So it was about my sophomore year um, when I was just I, I had to make the decision. Do I want to continue the next two years or do I just want to get my associates and call it quits? And after that, I just I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for my my bachelor's. So when I got um, past my sophomore year into my junior year, I had a professor named Chef Joe Melenson. And he was the one that really kind of pushed me to get into the kitchens after um, working in just like these little mom and pop shops or just like churn and burns and things like that. And just saying you can be and do something better. So I started working with him at um, a it was a country club in, okay. in Rhode Island. And then from there, he was like, all right, we had Barbara Lynch from Boston who came up to one of the events and he was like, you need to go talk to her. And I was all shy and she had, oh, sorry, I don't know if I can no, tell you, here. People have said far worse. I've <laughs> yeah. said far worse, so you're fine. Yeah, he was, I was just all shy and I didn't want to go up and approach. I was like, no, I'll, I'll let this opportunity pass. And thinking back on that, I was like, you know what? I should have taken that up. But I ended up actually applying to Duav um, and I got the position over there. And if it wasn't for him saying you should go work in Boston, you should go work in a bigger city, which, of course, from Rhode Island, a bigger city is Boston. Yeah. Um, I would have never kind of had that that push behind me, that motivation to seek other. Yeah. So what is the big lesson to draw from this? So it's to follow your mentors yeah. and take their advice, take their guidance. They know they've been through a lot, you yeah. know, and especially in this industry where you're passing on, I want to say generational knowledge or wealth in the industry and um, they can see the shifts in the and the dynamics in the, that's changing in the in this industry, yeah. and can really help guide and push you to be the best that you can be. Reflecting back at that time, what was it that what, what, what was it about you that he saw that made him want to take you under your your wing? What was your relationship like? What was that engagement yeah. like? Honestly, I've been struggling with that for the past few years <laughs> of people seeing more in me than I see in myself. Yeah, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to open up to and explore of who am I. And what is it that these people are seeing in me that yeah. I can explore more? Yeah. What was he saying to you? Like early on when he first started, like, you know, clearly investing energy and time in you, what was the reasons he was giving you? He saw that I was passionate, yeah. a hard worker, and I was dedicated to the craft. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I mean, absolutely what you're saying, like lean into your mentors. And I feel like there's so much pressure on high school kids to go straight from high school to college. Right. And I don't know if I agree with it. Uh, you were an exception because mm-hmm. in all the interviews I've done, it's always been the, the guys and gals who like went to school, failed out or like waited until they're like 22, 23. And they right. had a passion for food and beverage because yep. they were working in the industry who always made the most out of that college experience when they went to either Johnson and Wales or CIA or wherever it might be. Right. But they were, they were all in, you know, they're usually using their own money. They had yep. lived a little bit and they, they, network hard and they leverage those relationships and i and i'm willing to go on record and say the most valuable thing you're gonna get when you pay your whatever it is a hundred thousand seventy five thousand dollars thanks for reminding me yeah yeah to the, go to these <laughs> culinary schools isn't the education it's the network that's 100 percent true it's the network you're paying for because right. they're gonna open doors for you and just like you said like how how would you have been able to go from high school to barbara lynch mm-hmm. or chris coombs right. you know like that's a big step it i mean really is. You could do it with no experience, maybe not, but like it might take you longer to get there. Yeah, but like it's the doors that are going to open for you. So if you are listening to this and you are thinking about culinary school, know every professor by first name. Go hang out in their office whenever right. you can. Like they will change your life. 
if they like you, right? They will. They will. Yeah, no, honestly, sure. just remember that they are people too, you yeah. know? Before that, before chefs, they were they were human beings just like us, you know. <laughs> I don't do that much talking, but you really you struck a nerve with me in there with that one because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, make make the most out of those relationships. That's right. So he helped you connect with uh, Chris Coombs. Was Chris there at this time? Because you're young, you're only a thirty year old dude, right? Yes. Yeah. So yep. you're still a young guy. Yep. Uh, so how far back are we going right now? So this was 2012. Okay. Yep. Nine years ago. Yep. Um, you're so wet behind the years out of, out of, uh, uh, Johnson and Wales. Uh, what was it like working in your first professional kitchen? Oh, this wasn't your first job, was it? Uh, no, not, not the first professional kitchen, yeah. but first fine dining experience. Okay. What was yeah. it like? Um, you know what? I, I just want to touch back on the college experience yeah, first yeah, please, because please. I think it's important for yeah, this, yeah. this aspect. So thinking back into high school and everything, I think part of my motivation for getting through college was I didn't have a good, um, studying past and I didn't perform well. Um, through middle school, high school, it was always a nag for my parents to be on me about doing my schoolwork. Yeah. And when I made that jump to say, okay, I'm going into my bachelor's, that's when I was like, all right, I have something to prove. I'm going to finish this degree. And I ended up graduating cum laude. Yeah. So just, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's important to share those stories because people think, oh, you know, once you, fa- you fail at middle school, you fail at high school, then you have nothing, nothing to prove on. Yeah. And you can continue to improve on yourself. So what was different between your experience in high school and your experience here at Johnson & Wales? I think it was just I had... I, I loved cooking yeah. and being able to focus on that. Yes, there's still that aspect of the academics and learning about the maths, the science and all, and all of those things. But really, the food was the motivator. Yeah. What's the with the right why you can deal with anyhow? Is that the, the expression? But I like, haven't heard that one. Yeah. With the right why you can mm-hmm. deal with anyhow. And it's just this mentality of if you're on the right path, if you if you truly love what you're doing, like you can do anything. Right. Right. Yep. Um, thank you for getting into that. Of course. Uh, so, I mean, before we actually get into Duav and Chris Coombs, your first like fine dining restaurant were there any like transformative moments in restaurants or mentors working before this yeah so i worked at the country club for i think two total summers and the second summer that i worked there there was a chef named andy mcwilliams and i got really close with him um he was the uh he he was working under chef joe melanson okay um, but him and i worked really close together on the line and he taught me so much about like developing skills techniques what was the name of this country club one more time this was did you mention it before i'm I'm guessing back on it now (laughs) where was it (laughs) this was in jamestown rhode island okay Okay. yeah i was wondering maybe i knew the same country club but i don't think i I I can't even remember the name now Okay. that's <laughs> yeah. another cool thing too about working at country clubs uh, another thing if, if you are listening to this and you are working in a country club become best friends with the people that go to that country right. club like yeah. that's another great opportunity those people are usually really well connected and if they, they take really a liking are. to you like they can change your life for sure too. for sure uh, did they do you have any of those types of relationships there or did you see that happen uh, i was still young at the time so i didn't really dive into the connections of the guests or the club members and everything but i remember just um the chefs who were older enough and experienced and working with them they definitely dove right into those connections and networking and were able to pull massive events from being able to network with those guys. Yeah. Um, so working at this, this country club, I, I think I started asking where the other, any other mentors or key evolutions that I cut you short. I think I might've, uh, yeah, I was just touching base on the mentors, uh, yeah. evolutions. I think it was just being able to touch and feel new products. I mean, they were bringing in some really nice things, um, as country clubs are typically wealthy club members and they're able to bring in the foofy in- ingredients. So yeah. being able to touch and work with new products really inspired me to want to see what else was out there. Okay. Um, did you, I mean, you changed cause you got to see all this as a chef you grew, but what about as like a, you're, you weren't a leader at this point. Um, uh, but did you learn anything from the leaders in that kitchen, about what to do or what not to do? Absolutely. Uh, I learned to respect your whole team. 
everyone um, should share the same values and have that mentality of we're pushing each other up. Was that something that you witnessed? Yes. And how did this, who was it that, that did this? It was the whole chef team. It was Joe Melanson, Andrew McWilliams, and just pushing us all to be the best that we could be. Starting from the dishwashers, the line cooks, the servers, the hostess, we were all shared that same mentality of we're pushing the team forward. Was this something that echoed daily or was it like, was it obvious that this was the culture? And, yes. And like, give me an example of how they would engage people to like, to meet that standard of constantly growing. It was just the interactions that we all, all shared with each other and making sure that we all knew that this is the culture in the kitchen and we are here to motivate, push, and put the best food out and the best service out that we could i love that um is there things that they did regularly that we can like draw like things that you copy in your kitchens today that they did to kind of really set that in stone i think it's just having respect for one another and just learning that from a young age coming up in the kitchen is huge because you hear these horror stories of how other kitchens have been treated and the staff in the kitchens or the front of the house or you have that um, separation between the two let's call it cultures yeah um, within the front of the house and the back of the house and just trying to break that barrier break that mold and introduce one house so how do they reinforce it though like how do they really drive home this is what we're about just constantly harping on us and letting us know that this is this is the culture of the place you yeah. know there's no separation there's no clear lines this is all one team one one house we share the same vision yeah and probably quote him too often but like danny meyer says in his book uh setting the table constant gentle pressure mm-hmm. right you, you, your job people are going to shift over time they're going right. to they're going to they're going to shift away from the center line and it's your job to gently put them back on the center line like this is how we do things here absolutely you can't just say it one time it's got to be a it's constant repetitive motion yeah, yeah for sure awesome stuff okay so you you graduate from johnson whale you head to boston after taking the advice from your mentor yes uh what what was it about chris coombs and duav that was so uh appealing to you was the, it the restaurant or the, the chef that it was the chef team and the food that they were doing. It was, and I mean, they were just behind, it seemed like what was the new age of what the food was coming into the city was and just seeing all the flavors and things that they were building upon and the team relations that they have built um, after taking that first um, walkthrough of the kitchen. Yeah. It was really inspiring to see how they all worked together, how they all communicated and pushed each other to uh, achieve the same end goal. Okay. So how did they work together? How did they communicate? So it's a small kitchen, um, so working in tight spaces and just first and foremost communicating on a personal level. And you can tell that there is um, a camaraderie between them all of, okay, I really want to get to know this person because we are in tight corners and we're working 12, 14 hours days together. Um, So connecting on a personal level and then having the respect and understanding of, okay, business time, business time, once that service clock hits, we need to shut down that kind of instinct of wanting to kind of deepen that relationship and know that the food is the relations that we're moving forward right now. Okay. What do you mean by that? The the food is a relationship we're moving forward right now. So food is, food is art. And, um, I've had this recent experience with a artist in Houston, um, of how distract distracting it can be when people are watching or when you're producing your art and there's eyes or visuals or music or sounds around. And um, it, it's relative to when you're cooking or when you're plating is you want to have that real intimate connection with the food or the product that you're working with to be able to know and understand that you can hear the fish as it's sizzling in the pan. It's telling you when it's almost ready to be flipped or anything. You can hear when it's time to baste the steak and know if your glissage is breaking in your in your pan for your vegetables. So it's having that deep connection with the food that you're creating and understanding the timing uh, of the food that you're putting up yourself and your chef right next to you also so that way you can get everything to the plate at the same time yeah so it sounds like when you say food is the relationship that that's pushing us forward and then you just listed like that 
that re- respect to the process of cooking, right? But it sounds like what you're saying is that is that is the linchpin, that is the the common thread that we all share. That is the relationship that we're agreeing on that this is what we're doing and this is what our priority is. That's right. Uh, why is that so important? It's an alignment. It's a it's a it's alignment of values. It really is. And the kitchen timing is everything. And working and communicating with each other to get that timing correct so that way all entrees or vegetables or every, everything is going out on the same time. It's a symphony. Yeah. You know, one person starts, one person leads, the next person needs to follow. And it's it's just like a chain reaction. Chain yeah. effect. And I think that's one of the, the, the amazing things, too, of working at a restaurant like Dubov or I'm going to say it wrong. Duov. Duov, yes. Duov. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that restaurants like that or Bar- Barbara Lynch or any main major like culinary like reputation it attracts people who are going to – that have those same values. We're here to learn. We're here to to like do the best we can do. That's right. W- what did that do for you? Having other people who had that same level of, of passion and desire to do good. How it, did that serve you? You know, it really helps – me personally to push myself forward. I mean, there's so much turnaround as you know, that's coming in and out of the industry, especially back then. And in fine dining, it's really like you have to want it to be able to work in a, in a restaurant environment like that, where you're constantly pushing yourself to your, your most extended boundaries and everything. Um, and seeing the strengths, the talents, the dedication, the passion of others around that helps motivate me to want to have that same kind of push yeah. and figure how I can push my own personal yeah. boundaries without overextending myself. You're the average of the people you surround yourself with. That's right. I heard this example of like somebody who was going for a run. It was recently on the show and he was running pretty normally, like a decent, like maybe like an eight minute mile or something like mm-hmm. that. And then, uh, they signed up for this marathon and um, they accidentally signed up for like the advanced group oh. and he did like the best mile of his life. It was like, he shaved like a minute and a half off his time right. because he was surrounded by people who were running at a different pace yep. and you don't even realize it, but like you, you just keep up with the pack. That's so true. Right. And you will transform. Who were you going into that experience and who were you coming out of that experience? I How was, did you transform? I was a nimble green little line cook that thought I knew a lot about food and I realized coming out of there that there's a whole nother (laughs) world of food to learn, explore, grow from and continue to just keep, keep on that hunt for um, learning about other cultures, other cuisines, other cooking techniques and styles. Yeah. If you're a curious person, you're in the right industry, right? right? There there is no end. It's nonstop learning. Yeah. And that's awesome. If you like that, uh, what about Chris Coombs? Cause he was, you know, the, the, the name behind this brand, the chef right. behind this brand, what was he like as a leader? He was an exceptional leader for sure. I mean, I got in right at the moment where he was starting to open up and build, really build his uh, his brand. Um, so I was able to work hand, hand in hand with him and work on the line with him. And he taught me a lot about butchery and everything. And um, he really enforced the aspect of timing and understanding how you can kind of mani- manipulate your schedule to work in these extra products, projects so that way you can learn more. He would, okay. he would constantly pull me off of the li- off the line and say, "Okay, I want to teach you this thing right now." Um, and I, it's like you have to have time. It's like this is the chef owner that's that's willing to take his time to teach you something. So how can you manipulate your schedule to be able to work within theirs? Yeah, know? I love that. And this is the first time I think we've ever talked about this: is blocking time in the day for for learning. Um, so was it like was it? Would you have this conversation like? in the beginning of the day, like we're going to block time around in between these two things, or is it just like, we have a moment right now. We should take advantage of this moment. For the most part, it was just like, 
I'm going to do this right now. You're joining me or you're going to miss out on this opportunity. Yeah. So in my head, it's like, okay, what can I pass up on or what am I going to force myself to later? So that way I can take this time to learn how to butcher this rack of lamb and things like that. Yeah. But again, just establishing that culture that we're always here to learn. That's we're right. always looking to grow. I yeah. love that. Uh, were there any other key mentors, people who inspired you during this time that okay, are worth yeah. bringing to the conversation? Uh, Adrian Wright was the CDC uh, chef de cuisine at the at the restaurant, and I started there when she was just a sous chef. So to yeah. see her growth in the company, see her growth as a chef, it was truly inspiring. And then also uh, Stephanie Bui, um, who is absolutely one of my best friends, and she has taught me so much about just how you can twist and use your cultural references in cooking. Um, her heritage is Vietnamese. Um, so she was also always pushing the, brown, the the bounds of how she can incorporate some of her Vietnamese cooking styles or techniques into the French cooking. Okay. Going back to Adrian, uh, you said um, she grew so much, so much during this time. What did you learn about her growth? Um, <clears throat> that is a it's – an, it's a nonstop boundary. I mean the sky is the limit when it comes to growing and learning, and she was the epitome of that. I mean she – Started as she was the Sioux over there, and I saw her become the uh, chef de cuisine. Which going through that evolution in a fine dining restaurant is is massive. Yeah. So to be able to be there, standing on the line where she was just standing right next to me cooking, and then now all of a sudden I'm seeing how she's taking on more tasks, taking on more responsibilities, learning more about how the company is run as opposed to just how to create food. Um, that is something that I still carry. Um, near and dear with me and she is still somebody that I, con I connect with and constantly have con conversations of learning growing empowering and figuring out what the next steps are beautiful um and i don't really have a, a follow-up on stephanie but i know that right now uh your pop-up is is a lot to do with your roots right your, your haitian roots and right. you're cooking a lot from those roots is that inspired by stephanie i mean i don't want to get too far ahead right right but is, is that i mean do you think she helped maybe subconsciously like i would inspire say that i would say that Yes, throughout my cooking career, there has been chefs who dig deep into their culture and influence, and their food is influenced by it. Yeah. And I want to say that it didn't have a direct correlation with me wanting to start my brand Ensemble. Um, yeah. That was more so just I'm now at the point where I need to dig deeper and figure out who I am as a chef. Yeah, like I know um, Greenleaf has its own identity. It does farm to table American cuisine. Culture is a sandwich shop, bakery, um, supporting local the local community. But me as a chef, who am I? And it wasn't until some recent experiences that I did have of saying, you know what, I grew up eating Haitian food. I've done these pop-up dinners where I do a modern interpretation of what Haitian cuisine is, but I don't really know the true history or the techniques or the ingredients that are involved with um, Haitian food. So I wanted to dig deep into that and then also have the opportunity to share that experience with my siblings. So I reached out to them and I said, listen, guys, like we're getting older. Our parents are getting older, and we are first-gen uh, Americans, so if we don't take on these tasks, these responsibilities, then our traditions totally of our culture, they're going to get lost. Yeah, that's and smart. And I, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old, so it's like I want to be able to pass this down to her, and hopefully she continues that. You know? That's great foresight, and I want to pull back uh, this conversation of going deeper in uh, this journey that of who am I that you're on right now? I think, but we'll save that for like the way at the end. Yeah. Uh, so, how long were you with uh, Duav? Duav, I was there for let's see, 2012. Two, yeah, two and a half years, and then I left for a little, and then came back for another six, seven months. Okay, so when? Why did you leave? I was pursuing other opportunities. Okay, um, Duav was a great experience for learning about the aspects of fine dining and 
the attention to detail when it comes to technique, creativity, and working with these amazing ingredients. But I wanted the, oppor- <clears throat> the opportunity to learn more of business relations and get more of that corporate background. Okay. So I did take, Smart. yeah, I did take a step into the corporate and where'd you work? That was a uh, paparazzi Metro in Burlington. Okay. So that was one of my first restaurant opening experiences. I was a part of the opening team and I just caught the tail end of like the final build out of it when we were starting to bring on the, the kitchen staff. So what, what's the, at this point you said this is a corporate experience. What was what was paparazzi or what is paparazzi metro at this point? Paparazzi metro is a, I guess, a comforting Italian pasta pizza shop. <laughs> okay. And how many locations did they have? Oh, they had, I think, 11 or 12 at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's really smart. I think it's one thing to, to work at a, a kitchen like Duav is and you're going to learn so much about how to cook and how to do and how to really push the envelope with creativity mm-hmm. uh, and how to, you know, use like the, the French standards of cooking. Like you're going to, your technique is going to go through the roof. Right. Right. But at the same time, getting the experience and having that intuition to know that like, this is one vertical of cooking, but then there's the other vertical of cooking. That's like, well, can we be like, I don't, it's really hard to be profitable with that first line of cooking. Right. right. The labor expenses are through the roof. Like, so what was going through your mind? Like, what, what were the things you wanted to learn with uh, Paparazzi Metro? Sure. Like, what were the key things you were hoping to get from that experience? And what did you get? Yeah, they're definitely polar opposites, yeah. man. I mean, pulling from my experiences at Paparazzi Metro taught me how to um, work with the operational side of things and, and learning how to do Excel sheets and things like that and pulling uh, labor reports, cost reports, learn how to process inventory the correct way and input and export into the systems learning how to uh, hire, fire, deal with difficult employees because uh, corporations like that, they do have a, a higher turnaround and they're not as personable um, in relations with the employees because it is st- such a large corporation that they are dealing with um, multiple hirings, firings, so many locations, transferring of staff from different um, locations within the group. Um, so you just learn to kind of work with your scheduling and know when and where you're supposed to be at what time and really build a detailed calendar of events for your day, for your week, for the month, and um, learn how you can still continue to push and motivate the staff that you have there. Man, you just dropped a lot on us. Um, <laughs> I'm taking notes as you're going. So big thing, you were, le- you, you were learning numbers, specifically la- like how to manage labor costs, um, just like inventory co- costs, uh, time blocking, which is the last thing you said, which is huge, how to manage your time, right. which I think is probably the one thing that people don't teach us in this industry. We, we, we learn how to manage food. We learn uh, eventually how to manage numbers, mm-hmm. right, with the, the P&L and all that stuff. Um, but we never really get taught how to manage time. That's right. And that's one of those things that we just don't learn in school, mm-hmm. right? Um, what did you learn about time management? And then we'll t- start talking about how, how they taught you how to deal with people. Yeah, time management is a fickle thing because you're in the industry. You, you come in, you clock in, you have work to do. You need to get your list done. And, yeah, and you clock don't really in, have look time. at the list. Yeah, that's right? it. <laughs> and then it's just go. Yeah. So taking that extra five, ten minutes that it does take for you after you clock in to kind of just um, – swallow the list ahead and yeah. really organize okay this is the task that i need to start with this is when this is the time that i'm hoping to be done and this is when i need to be on the next one this is the five minutes that i'm going to take in between to breathe take a sip of water yeah. and use the restroom because yeah. we all know that it's just like you go and <laughs> whenever you have time you have the time so exactly. 
um, being able to dedicate those those moments for yourself and know that you have a list, a plan in place is is massive. It helps you outline your day and be organized and successful throughout your prep. Yeah. Uh, and what do they teach you about hiring, firing people, you know, basically human relations? HR, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, just that everyone has its own personality and you have to be able to work within those personalities and understand people, build those connections. And really the interview process is about um, building those relations before you even learn that you're going to bring them on the team and figure out if they'd be a good fit. And if the, the fit of the establishment is a good fit for them, because the last thing you want to do is bring somebody in just because you need somebody and you want to make sure that you're cultivating the right culture for the establishment where they feel at home and you can provide that home for them. Yeah. And I think, um, I can't remember the exact words you used, but it was something along the lines of you're just looking to like become their friend before you even decide whether you're going to hire them or, right. or not. Um, one of the cool things I've heard recently is this idea of like when you're interviewing somebody, I think it used to be like, you know, whoever was choosing to hire you or not kind of had the, the leg up, mm-hmm. but it's shift now. Like if, if you're somebody who's looking to hire somebody, they got a lot of options, That's right? You're selling yourself to them. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind. Like this person could work anywhere right now. Yep. What can we do to make them want to come work for us? You're, you are not so much. They're not selling themselves to you as much as you need to be selling yourself to that's them. Right. Right. That's so right. how were you selling yourself to, to them? Uh, just promoting the establishment itself, what we're doing, um, the food styles that we are about, um, the community around what we do to support and um, how we can uplift and continue to learn and grow. Yeah, but I think what the first thing you said before I, I decided to go deeper is uh, you were just taking an interest in that. Oh, yeah, for right? sure. Like, yeah. And if you, just, if you just take an interest in somebody and tr- truly care about that person and like you're genuinely curious, like that, I think people just want to be seen. Yes. If you can do that, yep. I think that's uh, huge stuff too. Um, regarding the numbers and, and like getting into the numbers, was there anything that you learned for – like the first time working here that you just never had learned between culinary school and like this prestigious restaurant. What were some of the things as far as the details of the numbers and costing? Can you, can you lean on any of those lessons? Yeah, it was more so just getting more involved with them. I mean, touching on in culinary school, of course you've had these yeah. short little lessons and this everything stuff over here. Yeah, exactly. You have to worry about someday. That's, that's right. That's right. Until then cook. Yep. And then yeah. you get into the fine dining and then you start as a cook or let's take it me. I started as a cook and then I'm in the industry and I'm just, I'm learning and growing as I can. And of course, with each opportunity um, from Duav, I was a cook. I became one of the sous chefs over there. And yes, through those experiences, you learn more about the numbers. You get more detail oriented. But jumping into the corporate end of things where you have more time to dedicate and you have a larger, much larger staff where you can fully divulge yourself into the numbers and learn how to manipulate your Excel sheets and figure out, okay, if I put this person here, if I shave off 10 minutes here, what does that mean for the final outcome? Okay, And just having the time to really push and sit yourself down in front of a computer and really understand of okay this is important like these numbers do matter because if these numbers aren't here then the business could this is the difference that could make the business fail or succeed you know? yeah and like if you're not paying attention to the numbers you don't know if you're doing better or worse right, right? and you might have a gut feeling but if you can back that up with yep. hard numbers and then you can see if your efforts to correct are actually working right, right? Uh, which is another huge thing that's super important um, you got to be able to track those numbers. That's right. Um, so, Paparazzi Metro. How long were you there? I was there for just over a year. So we're looking between the two years and then the other year, then 
the five months back at um, Duav, you're looking at like four, three and a half years right. total. So yep. now the year's 2015 and a half. Yep. We're in the summer of 2015. Oh, yeah. What's going on in your world? Because uh, I know you came back up to New Hampshire, but, but why? Yep. So I left uh, Paparazzi Metro, and that's because I realized real quick that the corporate background wasn't for me. Okay, you know? why? Um, it's a different kind of atmosphere. Okay. And it's not so much focused on the food. It's focused on the, it's, it's, it's hard to explain all it that way. stuff we just talked about. Exactly. It's focused <laughs> on the business. Yeah. And I wanted really to get that opportunity to be equal, you yeah. know? So I wanted to be involved with the food. I wanted to be involved with the business, but I couldn't do that at paparazzi. You know, yeah. the paparazzi was just like, you have to be here. You have to be sitting at the computer. Yeah, this is you the need job to, we hired you, you for. You need to show me the numbers and, yeah. that, and that's where you lie. And then manage your cook staff. Exactly. You're not on the line cooking. You're not doing this. Um, so I wanted that kind of hybrid and I ended up finding an opportunity where, which brought me to Manchester, New Hampshire, and I was part of the opening team of Cabernet. I don't okay. know if you've heard, heard of them. I've never been there, but I think I have heard of it in right. the past. Yeah. So I was the uh, head chef over at Cabernet and I built that kitchen from ground up and it was all these things leading into it where it provided me the opportunity to say, okay, I'm comfortable enough with planning, designing a kitchen, leading the vendors, getting in touch with all them to secure all the equipment, the supplies that we are going to need to open um, hire a staff and be able to push forward my vision of what I see fit for that, that, uh, that brand. Okay. So this wasn't your vision originally though. Was it your idea, this rest, this restaurant opening or uh, no. So yeah, I was working with the restaurant owners and okay. I was just in charge of the restaurant. Uh, uh sorry, the, the food side. And this thing. is your first opening ever too, right? First full opening. Yeah. So first full yeah, opening. Paparazzi so, was on the tail end of opening the restaurant. I really want to pull back some layers and cause how many total, actually, before we really get into this, mm-hmm. So there was uh, ca- Cabernet, am I saying it correctly? Cabernet. Cabernet, yep. thank you. Cabernet is... <laughs> <laughs> Different story. Cabernet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else did you do before partnering up with Keith Saris and All right, so it was Paparazzi Metro, then Cabernet. Yeah. And then after that, that's when I went into partnering with Keith. Okay. Um, so this is the first <clears throat> restaurant from, stra- from like start to finish that you helped open. Um, and you, you said you felt co- comfortable going through all this stuff. How... Did you get any experience ordering and like setting up vendor relations and stuff like that? Like through Paparazzi Metro, yes. Okay, got it. Um, So, what are some of the lessons to learn that you learned the hard way when it comes to opening a restaurant? Things to consider, things that caught you off guard that you can help prevent somebody else being caught off guard with. I think at that moment, I was just eager to do something new, and I fell in love with the idea of wanting to be in charge and having the opportunity to set up and do everything my own way that I lost sight of who, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, who, who was hiring me. And there was that disconnect of who the owners were versus who I was and where I wanted to be. Okay. So that's a huge lesson. So you were excited to be able to open this thing. Was it a mismatch in vision? Yes. Okay. Yep. So what was your vision? What was their vision? My vision was, I was still pretty much fresh out of my mindset was coming from a fine dining atmosphere and everything. And I wanted to kind of procure produce those foods that were coming out of the kitchen in manchester new hampshire in an area that wasn't ready for it yeah um so i was pushing my vision forward and that food was i felt as though i was doing the best that i could do with the team that i have involved and it just wasn't working for their brand their concept and um what was what, what about it wasn't working for them what were they looking for i think they got scared because it was their first restaurant opening and they don't understand that things take time to build develop and you need that kind of back end of a namesake of um 
people knowing who you are and the restaurants that you're coming into. And I was still a new name and they had never owned any restaurants uh, before and me trying to push my vision forward. And they had, it seemed what was a different vision after they saw that, of course, the numbers weren't working for them. They wanted to see something different and they started bringing in um, new products that I didn't uh, really accept to come into my kitchen. So I was just like, you know what? I think this is where we call it a draw. Yeah. How long did it take you to get to that point? Well, because I was with them for the whole opening, I was, I worked with the company for over a year. Um, when it came time to actually opening the restaurant, I was there for three or four months. Okay. And by month two, I think that's when I had my first conversation with Keith and said, you know what? I'm being open and honest with you. I don't think things are going to work out over there. And he was just like, listen, I always have a playground for you. So wait, you were there for a year by month two. You knew that there might not. Wow. So you you stayed another 10 months. Yep. Well, would you have done anything differently knowing what you know now? Would you have done anything differently during that one year? I think building a deeper connection with those around. And at that time, those around was just the owners. Yeah. Um, so really understanding what you're kind of throwing yourself into and taking that time to step back and say, is this what I really want or is this what they're trying to push on? Yes. Yeah. I think that those, those weird, whether it's at a bar someplace or in someone's home, but mm-hmm. those long, deep, intimate conversations where you're scratching you know, ideas yep. and visions down on pieces of napkins and just getting aligned. It's important. Yeah. Because if, if you have different visions, you're going to be pulling in two different directions That's right. and your team's going to be confused. They don't not, and you just can't get people pulling in the same direction. Right. Um, would you have, do you think you would have left sooner? I think that's a, that's a tough one. Thinking back on it. I mean, I, I wanted so hard, so badly to see the success of the, of the brand yeah. that I wanted to stick it out. And I think that was kind of like my pitfall, my downfall of me putting so much stress on myself. And I started working like 90, hundred hour weeks for, someone else yeah. and you never want to get to that point where you're stretching yourself so thin overburdening yourself on somebody else's account i mean and you're gonna it, start to resent that other person 100 percent. did you i did yeah i did how did that help well it was kind of a <laughs> double-edged sword didn't. yeah it didn't <laughs> i started resenting uh the owners and i started resenting myself yeah. for putting myself through that and feeling stupid um on me working so hard and and long for them yeah you know yeah no i think you know it's weird because i think <clears throat> the the industry standard is give somebody a year mm-hmm. right and I think that's, that was good on you. It says a lot about your character right. uh, that you gave somebody a year. Uh, but the big lesson to pull from this is when, when you're young and hungry and you're uh, ready to make a name for yourself and you see an opportunity where people are willing to put up the money and like give you creative freedom, yep. it's hard yeah. to the, to turn away from that. It's so true. Uh, all you see is like the, the stuff that you've always wanted yep. and you're blinded by what's not exactly the obvious things that aren't going to work out. Right. Yeah. Um, so thank you for getting into that. Of course. When did Keith Saracen come onto your radar? So Keith was actually a judge of a little food competition that we did. Um, <laughs> and it was just like three chefs and yeah. preparing uh, mystery basket dishes in their own kitchens. Or I used a home kitchen cause the kitchen that I was working at wasn't built at the time. Um, so it was just a mystery basket of ingredients. We all had the same basket and, um, the, the time started and he, he always expresses that, Oh, the minute I saw, I saw Chris walk through, he had his chef coat, uh, pressed iron, ready to go. <laughs> his knives were sharp and that's how he knew that I was going to win. And he loves sharing that story and everything. And I think that's when we first built that connection was after that, um, 
after that competition where I did win, of course, um, he was, he was just like, we need to connect. Um, so we connected through uh, social media and then from there we just set out and started having drinks and just talking about food, food relations, um, our culinary past and how we see the industry is shaping. And this was again, 2000, I think 2016. And at this point, was he doing the farmer's dinner? Yes. Okay. So at what time did the conversation happen where he says, let's come get involved with this? So this was about, June, July of 2018. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, or 2017, I want to say, actually. Where yeah. were you at this point in your life? Like, what What were your thoughts? What were you thinking? Like, I mean, at this point, you had left. Um, I, was, I always want to say Cabernet. And I know that's, <laughs> yeah, Cabernet. Um, yeah. says, I, I, do, I don't go to Cabernets a lot. I promise <laughs> you. Um, so... <laughs> What was like when you leave? Like, what's the mindset you're in? Like, what, are you saying like, like, what, what do you want to do? What, what were you telling yourself you were gonna do during this time after leaving? It was all about a reset, a, a reset, refresh for me. I mean, as soon as I was gone from there, I couldn't sleep. I went on four o'clock in the morning runs. I was taking videos, shooting photography, things like that, just to clear my mind. I think I think food was the last thing I wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I ended up taking a two week trip to Europe, where we traveled around the Rhine and the Mosul, and I think that's where my passion for food kind of sparked again. I was like, mm-hmm. "Wow, this is incredible! Mm-hmm. This is what food can be," and it's not this like pretentious, over the edge, like fully plated, composed meals. It's just like comforting. And building that connection with those vendors in the bread shops and the cheese shops or at the restaurants that we were going to, you really understand their passion for the food behind it. And it helped me realize why I got into the industry in the first place. What's different what, What's different with their passion versus what you were used to up to this point? I think seeing their passion over there, I've never really had those experiences here because I was never willing or wanting to learn and grow from other restaurants around. Yeah. I think I had that closed mindset of, Oh, this is the food that I do. This is how I want to push my vision forward that I was close to seeing there's other great chefs in the area that are doing these things that are sharing the same vision, the passion and wanting to teach um, others around and have that kind of sense of uplifting each other's restaurants, businesses, um, culinary talents around. Yeah. Um, so wait, that was what they were doing out there. That was different. Uh, no, well, that, that's, that's what you, that was going on. That that's way. what I saw. And I was blind to see that it was happening here also. Okay. Yeah. I think I might've missed something. Mm. So that you saw, you saw that this was happening out there. Uh, re reinstate that one more time. I just want to make sure I understand. Sure. Yeah. So just seeing their passion and involvement with each other, with the cuisine okay. um, that helped me understand that this is how I want to continue to push myself forward is by getting myself involved with the community around where I am. What was different about their attachment to the cuisine that's not happening here? I think at that time over there, it just felt more emotional, more involved. And they had that sense of, you know what, we've been doing this for years. This is where the food history is founded and things like that. I think there's more of a a sense of identity that comes with it. uh, Where in America, there's real no like, food identity right. maybe the the argument of like barbecuers mm-hmm. but that's so stupid because we've been doing barbecue for like <laughs> ten thousand years right? right like we can't stay clean we can't play that yeah <laughs> no. um but anyway um but like back there like their whole their whole regions are known for like a thing right and they take a lot of pride in that because it's history it's yep. tradition it's culture right? right um and i think we we are missing that a little bit over here because mm-hmm. we don't have that same tie that's right we don't have that identity we're just kind of a bunch of like you know, um, what's the word? Like, like lost, like boys. Right. You know? <laughs> um, but why is it important that we, how do, how do, how do we get to that same level of connection to the food over here? If we don't have that history, I think it's just embracing and learning yeah. and being open to exploration and understanding different 
culinary talents, traditions, identities, because over here, yeah, we don't have that history or anything, but we we're like a melting pot. Yeah. You have so many different cultures that are willing to share their food, their stories, and we just need to be willing to listen. So at this point, you're just like, you're just learning and creating and looking at the detail and you're proud of the food you're creating, but you don't have any identity to it. Whereas right. there's identity over there and that identity is huge. It's, it's, I think it's closely tied to like self-actualizing, right? Yes. Um, which is what we're all supposed to do. Right. But I think when you, when you have that history, it's so much easier because easier. there's something to be proud of. Right. right. So you, did it make you kind of want to, so like you recognize this, you see this how, in your mind, what is your, your strategy to achieve it? That didn't, come to me until years down the road. Okay. I mean, from then I was still just like, you know what? I'm, I'm out of the kitchen for now, but I want to dive back in. I know. But it, I know. Yeah. Like it, it lit something inside yes, of you. It did. It yeah. did. So, so, so you come back. Yep. What happens? And then from there I just started reading, okay. um, following these chefs on Instagram on, in Facebook and everything and just learning and seeing what they're doing. Getting inspired. And, yeah. Getting inspired. Okay. I think yeah. this is a good spot to take our first break after 47 minutes to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back. Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact service sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 in 15 seconds and norovirus, the flu and common cold viruses in 30 seconds, helping you reduce risk, simplify your procedures and help protect your team, your guest and your reputation with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Visit Ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. Okay, we're back. And when we left off, you were getting inspired. You're looking into other chefs. You were reading. What kind of stuff were you reading? What, what were you looking at? Uh, I think my favorite book that I always reflect back on is Volt Inc. So okay. it's the uh, Voltaggio brothers. Yep. They wrote a book together. And it's just, you can see like the differences of the two of them and their styles, their, their cooking techniques. And it's relatable. I mean, some of the ingredients are there that they're pretty far off and some things that you might not be able to um, get your hands on. Yeah. But the explanations of how you can manipulate these items, that's what I fell in love with. Okay. Um, what was going on with you and Keith? Cause I know at this point um, you're, were you, did, when did you start working with Keith at the farmer's dinner? Yeah. So that was back in the summer of 2017. Okay. And so you had, at this point you were already working with Keith. Yeah. Um, you had left to go on your trip. You're back. Right. Because uh, you guys open Greenleaf together, correct? 50-50 partners? Correct, yeah. Okay. So, it was, so when did that conversation start to happen? Uh, so originally we were looking up in the Lakes region, and okay. we had a, a location that we were pretty set on. We uh, did some floor plans for it and everything, and that just fell through. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal project. The owners of that place were um, incredible to work with, but the timing was just off. It would have led us into, I think, a 2022 opening. Whoa. And this is 2018 now that we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, you still wouldn't so. be open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so that definitely wasn't, I think it's a blessing in disguise. It it was, it was Uh, the other thing too. It's very seasonal up there, which is tough. That Uh, was, that was kind of like one of the selling points. Like, you know, we can just crush it for a whole season and then take six months off. (laughs) Well, I've seen people who actually, I mean, there is a lot of truth to that. It, I've, I had a past guest, uh, Roger Bodwin on the show, um, who I think it wasn't him, but he told me about this. He had a place called Matterhorn up in Sunday river. Hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of, of it. But he, they would go gangbusters from like you know December to 
April, right. uh, early April, and then he, they would take their entire team and then go to, I think, Saco. Wow. And they had a couple bars on Saco. Yep. So they had the same team in both locations. So they had this, the, the ski bums, uh, you know, yeah. and, and then the beach bums. Yep. And they would just take this army of people from the beach to the – but it worked. That's and, smart. And, yeah. and they were – in peak markets mm-hmm. so they were making money hand over fist right. uh, so that is you I mean we kind of laugh but yep. like that is a That's very a smart move yeah it's a very viable <laughs> uh, approach uh so you decided not to do the, the the lakes region um what was the conversations like that you and keith are having because before we were talking about how important it is to have the same vision to be aligned were, yep. did you guys ever achieve that yeah so at that point when things were falling through over there it was the conversation just came up and Keith was like, you know what? We can just continue to dive right into this uh, catering and go full force. And, you know, and I was like, catering isn't really the, the right move for me. And um, I was like, we might need to split ways at this point because I don't think that things are going to align the way that we're looking, we're looking and hoping for. Right was this now. before you opened uh, Greenleaf? Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, so, and then I was actually in France at the time when Keith gave me a call and I was like, listen, like we're on different time zones. Blah, yeah, blah, this, blah. Is, this is long distance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he was like, listen, man, I just needed to give you the heads up. Like there is a space available that I'd love to kind of check out. I was like, all right, I'll be back in two weeks and, uh, we'll go take a visit. And that was this building that we're sitting yeah, in right Greenleaf. now. Yeah. In yeah. Milford, New Hampshire. In Milford, New Hampshire. And he said, he said, it's Milford, New Hampshire. Space. I love the windows. Yeah. The light in here, man, is awesome. So much. Yeah. So much natural light with the windows and everything. These, these buildings, old mill buildings mm-hmm. make the best restaurants, right. in my opinion. They're yeah. beautiful. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah. So he said it's in Milford, New Hampshire. And I was like, great. Where's Milford? um so yeah that that was the start of the conversation and then as soon as i got back um i think it was either september or october of 2018 where we first took a a walkthrough of this space okay and you opened in 2019 right correct what what month of 19 uh may of 2019 so not that long after only like what would that be like six months six months yeah yeah so what take us through what the six months look like Okay, so we took a walkthrough of the space, and we fell in love with the history of the building. Um, there was little Easter eggs all over the place of like the uh, previous architect's hand drawings, which his name was Luther Greenleaf. So we named uh, Greenleaf after the original architect. From I think that's smart. Yeah. Whenever you can take the history of a town and right. instill that into the you know, people, identify with it. One hundred percent. Yeah, because this was a bank, and a lot of the community around they come in and they they look around and they say, wow, I'm, I'm in awe because yeah. they used to work in this bank or oh, their parents crazy. used to bank in the bank, you know? Okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was more so just like paying homage to the area, paying homage to the building. And from there, building the vision of what we wanted the space to look like. Uh, so yeah, starting in December, uh, November, December of starting November, December of 2018 is when we began the, the build out and it led us all the way up to, um, April, April of 2019 to get everything done, get all the contracts in order, make sure that uh, we had all the licensing ready to go. Okay. And then it was just game on from there. Were there any like things that happened that just were unexpected that caught you off guard that you could have caught if you had more experience? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because we had a skilled contractor that was working to set everything in, in play. And yeah. I think that's one blessing that we did have is just knowing that we could put full faith into the GC, uh, the general contractor, and know that he's going to take care of everything for How us. How did you know this general contractor? It was the landlord who actually had the connection. Okay. Yeah. So that's huge. Uh, sometimes I think when we're looking to open anything, build a house, do anything, right. we're looking at the bottom line always. Yep. We're like, oh, we can save $50,000 if we go with this contractor. Right. 
big freaking deal, right? Yep. Like, what's fifty thousand dollars when like they miss something that's going to cost you two hundred thousand? Exactly. So don't skimp when it comes to build outs. Right. Put the money up for people who have reputation. Um, any any other lessons as far as building your first restaurant? Yes. You. This goes back to the conversation well, I was just having. This is your second restaurant, technically. Yeah, second, yeah. But what were you doing differently this time around? So this time, it's uh, my money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, were, we touched base on it uh, earlier, just saying, have that opportunity to learn and grow and kind of make those mistakes with somebody else's money because yeah. it is a valuable experience saying, yeah. okay, I have... The sky's the limit when it comes to the budget on some of these things. So I'm just going to get the toys that I want to play. Yeah. And what then, was the mistake you were not going to make this time around that you made the first uh, time? Overspending for sure. And yeah. keeping track of the budget and What's everything that was coming this time? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Where did you get the money? Uh, so the landlord was very giving with all that. So okay. we actually ended up taking a, a large amount of the loan from him and then from personal investments from friends and family. What was it about you and Keith that made him buy in to your vision and to the two of you? I think it was just that we were relatable. Yeah. We were everyday people who were ready just to look for that next step in our careers and how we can be involved with the community and share our love for food. Did you guys communicate as far as, okay, you can give us this money. This is your building, but we did draw any lines as far as we're going to do this and you stay over here for the most part. He was just like, all right, this is, this this is your space. Okay. I'm going to give you what you guys need uh, within reason, of course, and just let me know your vision. And from there, Tell me how I can get you to achieve that. Okay. So, so you, there was no real lines of, okay, this is, I'm giving you all this money, but this is my, this is my part. Like, this is what I want to see you guys do. Yeah. So any key elements of the story up to this point that we haven't touched on that is absolutely worth bringing to the conversation as far as opening the restaurant? Yes. So I've heard a lot of horror stories with uh, restaurateurs who go into business, for lack of better terms, with their landlords or things like that. Yeah. And this goes back to one of the conversations I was having about building that connection with the owners or things like that. The landlord is a key factor into your success of the business and how they treat you up front will determine how they're going to treat you throughout the business relations. So really being able to understand and learn who you're getting into business with um, is a key important factor to knowing how you can judge your success and how they're willing to help and uh, motivate and involve themselves within your success because uh, your success as a business is their success. You know. Yeah. So what does that dialogue look like in setting this up right? Getting to know them on a personal level, okay. seeing where their head's at, seeing what their involvement's going to be, and just touching base on the difficult conversations and saying, if I'm at this point in two years when I know my lease is um, three years down the road, what does that look like for me? If I'm looking like I'm going to fail, what do things look like? Because, you know... Yeah, what's the exit strategy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to have those conversations with yeah. your partners, with your families, with your landlords, and just make sure... Or, like, what is the bottom line? Right. Like, when do we pull the plug? Right. What is that number? What does that look like yeah. so we don't go too far... Too, of course. To the point where we can't recover. Right. Right. Uh, as far as overspending and budgeting, what were you doing to make sure that you weren't getting too crazy? A lot of spreadsheets okay. and making sure that I understood what my menu was going to be and what I needed to execute that menu. Okay. So having a vision for the food first, yes. reverse engineering. Right. Because that'll determine what equipment you need, what refrigeration, what uh, stove tops and everything. So what was your vision for the food? Because we learned that when you were in Manchester, you were kind of really ambitious, mm -hmm. right? Like you were trying to blow the socks off right. of New Hampshire. Uh, was it that the same goal when you opened Greenleaf? That was absolutely my same ambition. Okay. You know, it's hard for me to kind of take that step back and say, this is what I want my food to be, but I know that it's not going to be accepted. So I'd rather reverse it the other way and say, this is what my food is. Please accept it <laughs> and kind of take that leap with me. Yeah. And yeah, since opening, it's just been like, okay, continuously pushing the boundaries and putting things on the menu that we didn't really expect would sell. So what would the first 
few months like? Like going into like May, June, chaos, April, chaos, man, yeah. chaos. Yes. Well, is, was it anything that you? Is it something that you think you missed, or is it just because you guys were t- so well received that it was just crazy? I think it was the build up and the hype. I mean, the, yeah. this restaurant was voted most anticipated opening, um, so that definitely helped. And we did a soft opening in April, uh, the end of April, and that was a, a madhouse. It was. It was horrible, you know, so stressful. Um, Who was at the soft opening? It was just friends and family at that point. So that, yeah, exactly. We needed that. But yeah, but then two days later we did the real opening and it was just like we had hundreds of reservations coming through for the weeks, you know? Yeah. Would you have done it? Would you have done the the different, a different opening knowing what you know today? Yes. I think I would have taken the time to say, okay, friends and family, the soft opening didn't go over so smoothly, didn't go over so well. Let's take the hit for the next week, really develop the team, really develop what our procedures and practices are going to be and kind of know that we need to take this step back to understand how we're going to push the vision moving forward. Yeah. What development did the team need? Time, time and better training, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just dove right in and it's, I mean, you're working within your own personal budget and it's our money, of course. So needing to pay the staff for two, three, four weeks before actually any income coming in, that's a difficult pill to swallow. Did you do that? Uh, For two weeks beforehand we did. Okay. If you, knowing what you know today, Mm -hmm. if you could go back perfect world yep. and train your staff the way you want to train them. What would that look like? It would probably be four to six weeks of training okay. and budget accordingly. Maybe that means I think get- that's the, that the secret right there yeah. is know that you're going to need that. Yes. And when you're getting the loans, when you're asking people for money, include, like, that. include it. And yep. I think this is where people go wrong is they just don't have the foresight right. of all the things they're going to need yep. and their runway is too short. Mm-hmm. Right. So they just end up losing. They just have to go right. Whether you're ready or not. Yep. So sorry to interrupt, but keep yep. going. Yeah. Just, Four or six weeks of training. I mean, it would have been super helpful for the team to be able to gel and really understand how they can work together. Yeah. What about material? Were, did they have the, the tools and resources? Yeah, all the tools were definitely here for the menu that we were ready to um, produce. Yeah. Um, after that, of course, we saw how we wanted to evolve and move things forward. So when we started making an income, that's when we started to kind of just push some of the ordering forward and say, okay, we need this to be able to do this next step, this next evolution, how we, how we can offer something more in terms of service. Yeah. What about your relationship with Keith? Cause you guys are, have a really strong relationship to this day. You're good friends. Uh, what was your relationship going into this? How are you guys dividing and conquering? What was your lane? What was his lane? Right. So as you know, Keith and I are both chefs. Yeah. Um, so that was a difficult conversation that we had to have in the forefront of saying there can't be two chefs. Who's in this. staring the shit? Exactly. Yeah. So literally there can't be two chefs. In yeah, the yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, I definitely dove in and I was like, Listen, I'm going to take this role. I'm going to lead the kitchen, and I want you to have that front of the house um, um, ownership mentality. Yeah. How and did he receive that? He was hurt by it for sure. Yeah. And just knowing that he wanted to kind of see the the food vision push forward, but we were both uh, friendly in, in the in the sense of respecting and understanding each other's growths and ambitions. And yeah. he well, knew what did that look like? That understanding. It was uh, those deep conversations, just saying this is this is where we're at. We know that we need one person to man the front. We need one person to man the back. And this is going to be kind of where we draw the line. And it came down to just saying, okay, Chris, you know, these are where your talents lie. I think you have the better capabilities to run, manage uh, the back of the house more fi- efficiently. I'll take the swing of the front and um, we'll take things from there and grow this. But you said you got that backwards, right? You're back of us. He was front. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay, got it. <laughs> uh, so, so going forward, um, as you guys had this, was there any, ever any tension thereafter around that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough when you're going into business with uh, a friend, of yeah. course, and there starts to become blurry lines and um, you build these tensions between each other of not communicating or miscommunicating and um, the work 
you have the feeling, of course, if you're 50 50, the work needs to be divided evenly. And, um, of course there's, there becomes that those moments in time where you need to reflect and have those conversations and say, what are we doing? How can we do things differently? And it's almost like you're going through like a separation or a divorce at that time where you yeah. need to have those, uh, forethought of conversations of saying, this is where we can be better. This is where we need to better communicate on and how we can both continue to move this vision forward. Okay. Um, and just to like kind of get there. So, uh, I'll just say like Seth, uh, Seth, um, Keith, uh, is no longer, uh, a partner of Greenleaf, but he's the reason why I'm here today. Cause he told me to come talk right. to you. So it's not like you guys have bad blood or anything right. like that. You just decided that it wasn't a good fit for each other. Correct. At what point did he, he uh, depart? Was it 2020? Yeah. So this is 2020. So you guys had a solid year working together, growing this thing. I think in 2018, you guys were named uh best. Was it, I think you were like most anticipated restaurant. Yeah. 2018 was the most anticipated New Hampshire magazine, which is, you know, like other people might say like, Oh, big deal. But New Hampshire, that's a big deal. Like we take that, we take a lot of pride in that. Uh, and then 2019, you guys were best new restaurant, best new restaurant. Yep. And, uh, I think what, I mean, you guys had a really great opening. Like you guys are getting a lot of accolades. Like what else am I missing? I think it's just the relationships that we were building with the community and more so with the farms. Okay. I mean, that was our main focus of opening this place is how we can, kind of build that relationship with the community to the farmers because okay. the farmers are the ones that are providing us life you know yeah so how were you developing those relationships first how are you developing community relationships and then we'll get into farmer relationships of course community relationships is really embracing those around those who are going to be the ones that are the mainstay of this establishment and supporting us through thick and thin um, so we wanted to have that outreach and say, okay, these are the the events that are going out. How can I involve myself with these food events, whether it's through the okay. charity events through the New Hampshire Food Bank where we go out and do these little tastings and really expose us to the community and let them know that this is Greenleaf. We are coming. Okay. So basically just really being plugged into the events that are happening locally and asking how can I be a part of these events. 100%, yeah. And in what capacity were you being a part of them? Just cooking for them, like competing or whatever, or volunteering? Yep, or? it was a little bit of both. So it was all, um, uh, the majority of it is charity work and just putting up um, your time and food for these events that are raising money for specific charities. Yeah. Uh, that helps you expose yourself to the community, of course, because you have your name that's going um, out throughout the states or I've done events in Martha's Vineyard on the Cape and just pulling your outreach and you're just in yourself. Houston, Texas. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> your reach is starting to get a little more, a little there, bigger. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but you gotta be involved, right? Yeah, 100%. That, that's huge. Yep. And, um, and the other thing that I mean, I think is worth pulling from this and we haven't talked about the, how you get involved with the farmers mm-hmm. yet, but Keith and you, cause you were his, uh, sous chef, right? For the farmer's dinner. Is that your official That's, title? You no, know, I was the executive chef was, over there. Okay. He was just like chef. running the company. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. So he, um, you together were developing relationships, even going beyond that. I think that's worth bringing to the conversation because right. you guys are essentially, we're just like pop-up machines, like mm-hmm. doing these massive pop-ups. I mean, I can only imagine how many emails that Keith collected and you collected oh, during yeah. that time. Was that, go- was that something that you guys were really being intentional about? Like how can we get a massive following and like, how did, how did doing the farmer's dinners set you guys up for success? We should probably right. nod our head to that yes. a little bit, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So, Keith was actually the one that was introducing me to all the farms when I was first opening up Cabernet to take it kind of full circle. Okay. He really pushed the uh, involvement of saying, okay, these are the farms that I've worked with in the past. These are, this is what the crops that they're growing. And I think that's when I had that revelation of, okay, this is where New Hampshire dying is going. Everybody's leaning into the farm to table. But for Greenleaf specifically, I wanted to take that to step forward and kind of bring the table to the farm, which is what Keith kind of embodies in the farmer's dinner. Yeah. 
Um, so kind of having that exploration with him and really taking the time to learn about the farmers, learn about the farms, their growing cycles, and really dedicate ourselves to wanting to have that deeper connection with them and understand who they are as people and why they got into farming, what that, what is they love about food and how we can share their stories through the food that we're producing on the yes. farms that they're giving us the food from. I love that. Yeah. So the, this, this was like two years, right? Or three, I mean, it's still going to this day. Yes. They're still doing these dinners, mm-hmm. but are you still a part of it? Uh, I'm not a part of it, but I actually am doing a dinner with them in July. Yeah, but like, just think about the the significance of that, mm-hmm. the relationships you're building with these farms, taking the time. And I can speak firsthand the power of going to somebody else. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and going to sit in their space. And there's just something about that connectivity that that relationship will last so much longer if if it's less, I don't know, intimate. Right. Right. Um, so you're, you're developing all these incredible relationships with all these future business partners because exactly. they are your farmers or your business partners. That's right. And beyond that, you're also going to all these different communities and getting your brand out. That's there, right. Right. So were you guys like, did you have the foresight then to say we need to retain these relationships and maintain these relationships? Did that happen? That conversation happen? Oh yeah. hundred percent. So what did that look like? Part of the biggest following that we did have on opening Greenleaf was the farmer's dinners clients. Yeah. Uh, or guests and yeah. um, just they were the most excited to see that there was a brick and mortar coming they have a place that is not just a pop-up event they can come as they please yeah. you know and building and relating the farmer's dinner experience into a physical location and transporting these farms that we do work with how we can bring all those farms together and share that experience as a dining with the community i think that's what kind of sets us apart yeah and um were you uh were you like, I don't know if, were you intentionally collecting emails? Is that part of the strategy? That's all part of marketing, man. I you mean, know? like how many emails did you guys have opening this restaurant? He had thousands, yeah. you know, over the course of, I think the company was nine, eight years old at that time. So think eight years of email marketing and thinking yeah. of hosting all these pop-up events in different parts of the state, different parts of Massachusetts and Connecticut, Rhode Island and yeah. things like that. And so. that's why I love pop-ups because you... You focus on doing one thing really well. For you guys, it was about the relationship with the farmer, right. right? which is huge for branding. Focus on doing one thing really well. Share your, your passion and just start small right. and just scale and just collect emails, maintain those relationships, manage those relationships. Uh, awesome stuff. Um, what to talk about now? Because I think it's worth kind of talking about the conversation where you and Keith decided to part and right. what what advice you have for people who might have to go through a, a business separation. Right. Like how do you how do you uh, maintain the friendship thereafter and stuff like that? Like, what was that like? Those are definitely hard, difficult, awkward conversations to have. Yeah. And I think it is really important to mention before going into a partnership, just make sure that you both understand that lawyers are critical in setting up a business, setting up your operating agreement, whether or not you think that you are the best of friends going into it. You got to protect yourself. Yeah, and don't, look at, don't look at it as trying to hurt the other person. Uh, yes. Look at it as trying to protect your friend from protect yourself. Protect your friend. Yeah, exactly. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, protecting the business too, yeah. because things do happen. And is that something you guys sideways. did? Did you guys have lawyers get involved yes. before? Yes. So how did that make your separation, your, your breakup, your business breakup? Cause you guys are still friends. Right. Uh, how did that make things easier? It made it easier because we knew that these things were all documented and it was all going by the state regulations and things that we needed to know in regards to like the legal aspect of the separations. Yeah. So what were the key elements that your business operation had or your business agreement had um, that you would recommend other people making sure you have that? 
in their agreement. I think it's just um, as we touch base on an exit clause, exit strategy. Yeah, as I say, maybe you have to call your lawyer to answer this question. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Can I talk about this? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, definitely have an exit strategy for each of you and thinking what that looks like, what it looks like if one uh, of your partners wants to leave, if that's a buyout, how much is that going to be of the buyout, if you're trying to sell your share of the company, and um, also just knowing that you have the comfortability of the, the law kind of guiding you and saying, okay, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. Yeah. And, um, just being open and honest with each other. Yeah. Uh, any other big lessons, um, from like the first year of opening Greenleaf before we start talking about 2020 mm-hmm. where you opened your second restaurant, right? Big lessons, uh, get the team involved, really have them dedicate themselves to the brand and have them have, have them feel like it's a part of them. They yeah. need, they need to sell the business as you are. You Give know? me examples of how you're getting your team involved. So I've always been big on kind of opening up and expressing where the business stands, what that means for us financially and, and how we can get them more involved in understanding why it costs this much to do that or why you need to be here at this, this time doing this or if you cut this fish this way and just throw away the wet, the rest, what does that mean for yeah. um, the the final cost? Yeah. Um, so just training them and getting them involved with what it means to own the business, which is kind of where I took that full circle moment of coming from Duov into the corporation and saying, okay, this is kind of where I wanted to take that ne- next step forward. Why can't I provide that to the employees who kind of have that desire or want to learn more about it? Got it. So making it educational, not just do this because I'm the boss and I right. said so, but do this because there's a this is what happens when we do this. Right. Uh, really educating people and growing people. How how open are you with your books and the numbers? Uh, to the extent of just understanding the basic of okay. the day to day breakdown of this is how much we made, this is where this went, and um, how they can understand how much cost is actually involved with opening the doors. Yeah. And uh, what about solutions? Are they able to contribute to getting better? They, are you open to their like opinion? On, yep, like, absolutely. And what does that look like? So a lot of the operations, especially in the front of the house, is uh, feedback from the from the employees and yeah. just saying, how, how can we continue to um, push the service aspect forward? How can we can be better employees? How can I be a better employer? And it's just by listening to them and understanding what their needs are. And of course, everything is within reason. And um, as long as the request is valid and I understand, I see what their kind of vision for it is moving forward. It, if it makes sense to me, it makes sense to the business, it makes sense to the smooth uh, operations of the front of the house, of course, I'm going to allow them that opportunity to learn and grow from that experience. Yep. If it fails, it fails. But at least they have that hand in knowing that this is what I contributed. Yeah. So um, the big things I'm pulling from that is always be teaching and explaining and growing your team. Also, give them a voice. Let them contribute. Yes. Anything that I'm missing as far as what you do to kind of foster culture here and, and to support your team? I think it's just producing that mentality of we're all the same house, you know, yeah. this, this front of the house, back of the house, um, which is one cool thing about yeah. the, the space you have is that you are literally like in one open space. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, cool. the big thing when we were designing this is that we wanted everyone to see that, um, we are true to who we are back here. I mean, yeah. the back of the house, they're producing the food. You can see everything that's going on. You can see, um, all the products that are being broken down and you can see the farmers walk through the door and deliver us the food right at the kitchen counter and things like yeah. that. And wanting to kind of bridge that gap from the front of the house, back of the house is where we bring in the bartenders and say, okay, this is the product that we are getting locally from the farms. This is what's in season. How can you take some of our scraps or how can we take some of your scraps and utilize that in the food or the drinks that we're using? Yeah. Awesome stuff. Okay. So, um, going into 2020, 
It's March of 2020. You guys are open for a little, almost a year at this point, yeah. right? March of 2020. Um, pandemic hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the, This sector, I'm assuming you were full service, right? Yes. So this sector is the sector that got hit the hardest, right? right? Escalated fine dining to, to full dining services, right? Mm-hmm. So did you just shut down altogether? Like how did you evolve? And I don't want to spend a lot of time here because right. I feel like there will never be another uh there will be another pandemic probably but we'll have lived through it so we'll know how to this is the first time we had to live through it and and adapt right um so what what did you guys do and i guess basically yeah just tell us real quick what did you guys do without getting into the details because i don't think it's worth it sure thing yeah (laughs) uh so we actually closed down for just two days um, so the, I think the biggest thing was having that opening conversation. I think this happened February or early March with the front of the house and saying, listen, guys, we see business isn't doing as well as it can be. And we all know of the news of the coronavirus spreading and everything. Um, so we're just going to continue to monitor the situation. And then March 17 comes. Boom. You guys have to close down. So we brought in the whole staff and said, listen, guys, this is this is the end of the line at this moment right now. Unfortunately, we have to furlough you guys until we can figure things out. So it was just uh, myself, uh, Keith, and two other employees that were just here running the operations. We shut down for two days just to kind of square everything away. Yeah, Yeah. I had to order in all new takeout containers, new products, and figure out a whole new menu because the food that we were producing was not—it's not suitable for takeout. Okay. So it was more so just like thinking in terms of okay, what kind of comfort dishes can we produce that can get um, to the community uh, for the family, and how can they share that experience at the table? What does that look like for the food that we're bringing in? What does that look like for the prep for just primarily myself in the kitchen? Um, and how we can continue to just hopefully maintain the business throughout this pandemic. Yeah. And you, it's still here today. Yes. So you guys were able to maintain. Right. Uh, but you also opened a restaurant. How, in what? But what, 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 it was 2020 you opened the restaurant. Yeah, that was what August was of 2020. So, okay. Like, was that, were these plans in place? Were, the, was, were, were things happening to make this work? Yes. So... Um, with culture, that plan was kind of set in motion the end of 2019, okay. and we had the plans to open up after we figured out uh, our first New Year's at Greenleaf, and yeah. then things started to decline. As you know, um, the pandemic started to worsen in the States, and it was just like, okay, we need to put a hold on that project. Yeah. And then come March, it was just, we. I think March 11th is when I started placing the orders for the equipment because we said, okay, we're, we're going through with it. And then March 17th, the closure, closure happened. So within a week's time, I ordered a bunch probably seventy five percent of the equipment over <laughs> yeah. for culture, and then at that point everything shut down. Oh, so man. it's like okay, I, I <laughs> we screwed up. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you're in business and established beforehand. Like if you opened in like you know February of 2020, you wouldn't have been able to get support from the right. government. So you had that timeline. You were open long enough where I'm sure you guys probably were able to get like disaster relief loans and things like this. Yes. Did that help? Is that would you have not be here today if you didn't have that support? 100%. Okay. And I'm very open and honest with the staff, and I say, like, listen, guys, like, we can't do what we need to do unless we get this PPP. We can't yeah. do what we need to do unless we get the RRF. And yeah. it's just like going through those motions and and seeing and ap- applying for all those things. Do you uh, have to an accountant to, to be able to, or are you doing this all yourself? Yes. Uh, accountant for sure. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's huge too. It is. To have somebody who knows exactly what to do, yep. uh, doesn't mess up paperwork because right. that can delay the process right. yep. and money can run out. Um, again, I don't want to get into details of this because hopefully we don't ever have to deal with that again. Right. Um, but what I am curious about is 
did did the, the the pandemic influence the menu at Culture? Because now all of a sudden you're doing the perfect kind of food for a pandemic, right? I or think was it just was it coincidence? It's coincidence. I mean, we went into that knowing that this is going to be a sandwich shop focused on uh, artisan sandwiches with uh, artisan bread and the bread made in house pastries and everything, and how we can take the scraps from any other products and turn that into soup. So it was yeah. always always just like thinking of okay. Culture is going to provide the bread for Greenleaf. Greenleaf is going to provide some of the scraps that we can utilize to eliminate waste Smart. through the soups or through some of the sandwiches and things like that. Okay. So were you treating the businesses separate? So like when if you had scraps, were you literally selling scraps to like be able to track and trace? Like uh, No. So it's just okay. like – so if we're making a chicken stock over here, we have the chicken. And if there's meat still left on the bodies or the bones or anything, we'll pull that meat. And how can we turn that into a sandwich? Okay. And it's just having that forethought of saying these are the scraps that we do have. How can we manipulate that into something that can be delicious? Yeah. It's it, not so we're like opening a place to take scraps. You so know? you opened – culture and you could only do pickup right at this point because the businesses weren't open uh, yet actually or delivery pick no up and no we were able to do we did set up a couple of seats in there yeah. um but it was primarily just 90 percent of the business was just, capacity, just pick up percent capacity yep. yeah mm-hmm. um i mean there's so many things we can talk about any it's it's weird because like the 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 environment in which you open culture wasn't a standard environment right so i don't know if it's worth I don't know if that environment will ever exist again. Hopefully it won't anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what were the lessons you learned with culture that are translatable? I right. guess. Uh, so with culture, culture was a completely different opening experience than I had over at Greenleaf because Greenleaf was a much larger scale restaurant, which had the general contractor, which was leading the whole project culture. I did probably 95% of the general contracting myself. Yeah. I was the one that was leading the electricians, getting much on the truck. Space. So much smaller space. What is this, like, like 1,800, 2,000 square feet? Up here is just under 5,000 square feet. Okay, wow. Yeah, because it, it goes like way uh, down okay. to the back. Yeah. How much square feet is called? Uh, I want to say 18, 1,900 square yeah. feet. So a little bit more reasonable Yes, space. exactly. Yeah. So I was in charge of getting the electricians on board, the plumbers, and maintaining and getting their schedules on track to make sure that I was, it wasn't going to get delayed for opening. And over there, of course... Uh, Keith and I had already gone through the separation, so there was no partnership. Yeah. So it was just me kind of putting my foot forward, saying, okay, there's all these rocks that are under the floor. I have a pickup truck. I'm going to go over there, scoop up thousands of pounds of rocks, and they're still actually dumped at my house right now <laughs> because that's what needed to get done. They need that's sand. Uh, sand costs $40 for them to deliver to culture. I'm going to save that $40, spend it elsewhere. I'm going to go pick up the sand myself. Yeah. You know, it's just thinking, thinking in terms of that, how I can manipulate and save funds over there because I knew it was getting into a sticky situation. Yeah. I didn't know if it was going to succeed, uh, come opening. Yeah. And how is it, is it, how was it received? Insane. Insane. Yeah. So I didn't I'm know. I'm excited to go. I might grab it. Are you guys open right now? Yeah, we are. Open. I'm yep. getting a sandwich. Right please after. do. Please do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I did not re- think it was going to get uh, received the way that it did. Um, and in planning for that, I had a large staff and every everybody was trained. And I think the blessing was being able to have some of the staff start at Greenleaf yeah. before culture was open. Yes. So Greenleaf, we actually opened our brunch program. So that way we can have some of the staff start on board here. They can get used to some of the systems. They can start training, building the menus over there. And when culture opened, um, they already had like six weeks with the company. Yeah. So they just dove right in. They, when the kitchen was fully built, the health inspector came by, they were ready to start pulling food in. They transferred over there. And, uh, the first week was madness, madness. I mean, the first day that we actually, the first week that we were open, we ran out of food, um, all the days that we were open. So we ended up having to close early just because we couldn't keep up with the demand. Yeah. Um, 
I'm sorry, I'm distracted because I just took did this costing and profit course with Rudy Mick. We, we hosted it, mm-hmm. and he said, "Never say run out of food. You always sell out. Sell out of food. We sold out. But any big lessons uh, as far as what you think? I mean, again, you guys, you had the reputation, you had the brand. Um, you're doing food that was perfect for that time. You're right. Takeout sandwiches, yep. travel soup, all travel so good. Uh, what what tools were you using to get the word out? How were you like, like what the technology side of things? Because yeah. you probably had to heavily lean on technology, probably more so than before COVID nineteen. So, what was that process of learning all this technology for right. you? I think the biggest tool that we had was the power behind Greenleaf. So, what we ended up doing here was before we knew Culture was going to open or had the plans to open Culture, we started offering Culture to go from Greenleaf. So it was kind of like a hybrid menu where you could order culture sandwiches before culture was even open. Or you can get pasta or um, mashed potatoes and steak from Greenleaf. So we had that hybrid menu going and people were starting to get the taste of what culture is going to be on our bread, on our our sandwiches, our soups and things like that. So once the doors opened, they were like, I've had this two months ago and I want it again. I want to come back. Now this is a physical location where I can start telling people where to go. Nice. I love that. Um, So we have to leave time because you um, you have a new project starting right now, which is a pop-up. Yes. So what was was going on in the back of your your mind? Like, why did you start this? pop-up what's the intention with this pop-up right so the intention with this pop-up is um, bringing my family together to learn about haitian cuisine so the name of the pop-up brand is ensemble and that means together in haitian creole Um, and that focus was mainly just my siblings and i learning from my parents of their cooking styles techniques that they've learned from their parents their grandparents and how we can kind of continue to honor our traditions honor our food honor our culture and share those experiences with the community. Yeah. And what I love about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, I'm making assumptions right mm-hmm. now. So if I'm wrong, please correct me. This isn't a cuisine that, um, even though it's your history, your family, this is what you grew up eating, you never really leaned into this cuisine until now. So you, right. you this was still kind of a green, like, I don't know how to say it, but like you're not an expert in Haitian cu- cuisine at this point when you're just starting. Right. So when you started uh, these doing these pop-ups, was the intent just to kind of figure out the recipes and just to, to have an excuse to explore? So the chef of the of the pop-up itself is actually my mom. Oh, really? So, yeah. So she's the one that's behind the madhouse of the cooking, and I'm the one that's learning from her. Okay. So it's not so much I'm figuring out as I go with the recipes. It's like she's cooking, and I'm standing hand-in-hand hand That's even to her. better. So yeah. here's what the point I was going to make is you don't need to know. You don't have to have everything perfected. Not at all. The journey is inspiring. That's right. And you can show your work yes. and you can take people along that journey with yes. you and pop-ups in my opinion are the best vehicle to do that. Cause like most of what you're doing, cause you don't have the brick and mortar, you're not doing it every day. Right. So a lot of the business is just telling the story. Yep. Right. And, and bring people in digitally in like with video and like here, we're going to, we're working on this recipe that That's will be right. available on the pop-up on this day. Yep. And like you can do that and you can bring people in on the journey and they, it's actually like, I think more powerful if you do that. Of course. Like, so that, and that's why I love pop-ups because people feel like they need to be perfect before doing anything. And they, right. they never start because they, they wait for things to be perfect, but it's the imperfections that make it perfect. Exactly. You figure it out along the way. Yeah. Is yep. that, was that intentional or is this like in plus like it's just efficient. It's efficient way to do shit. Right. When like, you're just like, well, Told you I didn't know what I was doing, exactly. but like, like we're figuring it out. And yeah. I think people are forgiving, um, but I don't want to put words into your mouth. So mm-hmm. as I'm saying this, like what's going through your mind? So when we officially launched the brand and we had our first dinner, I think the first 
exploration that I did want to have into it was after uh, January 1st of this year is when um, we did Soup Jumu, which is like the soup of Haiti. And it's called Freedom Soup because on uh, January 1st is the Independence Day. Um, and how we celebrate Independence Day is by having Soup Jumu because that's the first soup that we were able to kind of procure from our freedom from the French. Um, so as part of culture, um, I wanted to offer that as a relative uh, relation to the community and say, this is who I am as a chef. This is how I want to kind of welcome Haitian cuisine to you. And it was so well received that I was like, all right, let's, let's see what happens if we host a, a uh, dinner at the end of the month. Um, so we actually held the first ensemble dinner over at culture, um, which culture is, it's a, it's a sandwich and bakery shop. So there wasn't much set up over there. So we did a lot of the food production out of Greenleaf, transferred everything over to culture. And when we first put the ticket, the menu on sale, we sold out 130 dinners in the first two days. Wow. Yes. So that was the inspiring and motivation behind, okay, I think we have something here. And besides getting the food to the community, how can I continue to inspire my siblings to want to make the drive from Massachusetts once a month to learn about our food, our heritage? Yeah. So are you doing the pop-up at Culture? Uh, no. So ever since then, it was like, okay, we're doing all, we're pretty much doing all the food preparation at Greenleaf. We might as well just keep it at Greenleaf. So okay. it's all picked up at Greenleaf. So now. what are some of the lessons we need to learn that you've learned the hard way as far as how to how to execute a successful pop-up? It's having the business relations in place and knowing how to market yourself. What business relations specifically are you talking about? Well, in my sense, it's my own business relations with Ansam and Greenleaf. Okay. And it's easy enough for me to say that I can just host these pop-ups whenever I feel. You're asking yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but still knowing that it's a separate company, separate brand and keeping it truly separate. And respecting so, that. hundred yeah. percent. So respecting the staff who is here for Greenleaf and knowing that the products that I'm bringing in needs to be separate. The products that I'm doing needs to be separate and everything like that. And I think for other pop-ups coming in and being hosted at other restaurants, which I've done other pop-ups in other places, is just respecting the boundaries, respecting the the environment, and knowing that you're in somebody else's house. Yeah. So what are the boundaries? Uh, just learn the rules of the kitchen over there. Learn what you can touch, what you can use, what you need to bring in, and how you can respect the chefs, the cooks, the dishwashers, and what you, what impact or imprint that you need to leave on that kitchen. So assume nothing. Ask questions. 100%. Like, is it okay if I do this? Like, and just kind of get yes. like, establish those boundaries. Yes. Awesome stuff. The other big part of that what, that you said was the marketing side, I think. Mm-hmm. So how do you properly market a pop-up? Um, you know your clientele. You know, the style of food that you're willing to, you're hoping to put out, you have to have that outreach and say, okay, this is the, this is the food that I'm doing. Who's willing to listen? Who wants to share in that story? These experiences with me. Okay. And just kind of build that brand. So you lit- do you literally there. like email your guests and say, Hey, do you want to be a part of this? Yeah. So a lot of us for Ensemble was emailing the guests from Greenleaf or using Greenleaf and cultures platforms to push the marketing of Ensemble forward. And I think that's the big thing with other pop-ups coming into different brands is asking the business that you're going into, if they will use their media platform to help promote your business or help promote your event that's coming through. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, I can't believe how fast time is going. We have six minutes left together officially, uh, but we do want to leave time for a speed round too. So we have to wrap this up before I do wrap it up. I got to ask you, um, what's the deal with Daywalker? I don't know who signed you up for that question. <laughs> so, all right. So this is back in 2012. I just started over at uh, Duov. Okay. And we typically have black chef coats, black pants, black shoes, and everything, and blue aprons. Okay. So one day, the linen, con- the linen company dropped off black aprons. So I was wearing all black suited up, and they started calling me uh, Blade. 
And one of the cooks was like, nah, Blade isn't, Blade isn't the, isn't the way to go. So then he said, it's Daywalker. <laughs> and then from that point on, I was never able to escape that name. Okay, Chris made me, or Chris, Keith made me uh, ask. He's like, make sure you ask him about Daywalker. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. And I do wrap up the free-flowing part of each conversation by asking, um, reminding people, our mission here is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed personally since 2012? Wow, that's a that's a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, it's taken a long time for me to get to the place where I am, and I'm just now figuring out who I want to become. And it's really diving into my my culture, my heritage, and seeing how I can lead, grow, and inspire the staff of, staff around, and continue to provide them with the opportunities that I wish I had coming up. Yeah, I love that, man. Uh, one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Have you heard of Ovation? So. Let me tell you about how I heard about Ovation. I was on a search to find answers about SMS best practices and organically like four or five of the experts in my network were like, you got to talk to Zach Oates from Ovation. He is the SMS king. So naturally, I got Zach Oates on the show to talk about SMS marketing in that time between first having him be mentioned or come onto my radar to the time we had him on the show, tons of people were recommending Ovation. Even restaurantowner.com, one of my past sponsors in a company I have a lot of respect for, did a survey and Ovation was the number one guest feedback platform. So naturally, I'm here to learn more. Uh, so we had Ovation on the show. And if you're not familiar with Ovation, Ovation is an omni-channel two-question survey that gets happy guests to leave positive reviews and unhappy guests to chat with either you or a team member to resolve the issue in real time before they leave a bad review online or never come back to your restaurant. With this new channel of communication, you can easily see trends of what is driving positive and negative experiences in your restaurant. Not only does it improve your communication in your relationship with your guests, it also helps you drive revenue. You can drive revenue with third to first party ordering conversion. You can drive revenue with rainy day text message blasts, and you can even drive revenue when getting your guests to automatically download your loyalty app. To learn more, head over to ovationup.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you will be able to claim $2,000 worth of free text messages to help you get started with more feedback, reviews, and revenue. Again, that is www.ovationup.com slash unstoppable. A lot of people are talking about Restaurant 365, and that's probably because they are the only cloud-based, all-in-one restaurant management software with restaurant-specific accounting, inventory, scheduling, and payroll plus HR. Restaurant 365 is perfect for the multi-location restaurant business. Their customers have seen 5% decrease in food and beverage costs because they have access to more actionable data. Restaurant 365 is the king of integrations with over 90 integrations with the POS, including hundreds of vendors and thousands of banks. So you have a truly connected system. No more managing 
out of multiple systems. Lastly, Restaurant 365 empowers your management team with real-time P&L with access to check-level detail, which means no more waiting on your accounting teams for P&Ls weeks later. And it gets even better because with Restaurant 365, you can save time and money. You save time with things like automated invoice management and accounts payable and a slew of other systems for administrative tasks. You save money with powerful labor forecasting so you can see labor trends and make adjustments. And Restaurant 365 allows you to track actual versus theoretical costs to ensure you're not losing any margins due to waste or error. Interested in franchising? Restaurant 365 has tools for that too. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, you will save 50% off your first month subscription. Again, that's restaurant365.com slash unstoppable. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe contributes or most contributes to your success? I'm personable. Mm, What is your biggest weakness? Getting in my own head. Yeah. Uh, How do you get out of your own head or how do you recognize you're in your own head and get out of it once you're in it? Taking time to take a step back, breathe, and relate to the task at hand. Yeah. Uh, What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? What do you like to do on your off time? And what are you looking for? Uh, Relating to the future employee. What's your biggest challenge today? Biggest challenge today, I would have to say structure and scheduling. How are you overcoming that challenge? Getting the team involved and learning to trust in them and provide them with more opportunities. So when you say structure and scheduling, you're talking literally like labor management or what do you mean by structure? By structuring and scheduling for myself Oh, okay. and overextending myself and knowing that I'm pulling on too much tasks and responsibilities and I need to learn that I have the staff involved that is trained. So you're delegating. More. Delegating, yes. Got it. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. So this is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Treat others with love and respect the same way you'd like to be treated. The golden rule. That's right. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurant or restaurants, I should say, uh, to go above and beyond but not common throughout the industry? I would say that our guests are part of our family and we learn to build and connect with them on a personable level. Yes. Uh, What is one book that's a must read that makes us a better person or restaurant owner? Yes, Chef by Marcus Marcus Samuelson. Okay. What's your biggest takeaway from that book? Just leading and inspiring your team. Be true to your culture and your heritage and share your story. I love it. Uh, And what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Relate to your staff. How do you relate to your staff? Being one-on-one and having those conversations, being treating them as people and knowing that they can relate to me and trust in the conversations that we do share. Name one service you've hired or outsourced to to do something better than you could ever do it on your own. Hmm. This is accounting, PR, marketing. Oh, yes. Things yes. of that, services like that. Uh, marketing, for sure. And who is your marketer? Ethos Enables Creative. Okay. And... Um, what is it that they've done for you that you wouldn't be able to do if not for them? So I brought on Ethos Enables a, comp- a couple of months ago, and they have continually pushed the boundary and pushed the um, the marketing of the company and advertising forward. And okay. have been able to redesign the whole website and really push the promotion. Okay. And sit, name that company one more time. Ethos Enable. 
Ethos and Able, like A-B-L-E? Yes, okay. Ethos and Able Creative. Got it. And uh, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted within your business that's had a huge impact on efficiency, communication, efic- um, profitability, anything along those lines? All the Google document drives, like Google Sheets yeah. and all that stuff. It's, it, it works. That is huge. Yep. Um, and I think probably underutilized. I mean, 100%. you can have documents. There's no excuse anymore. Right. You can access everything. Yeah, because right? I'm bouncing back and forth between the businesses and home and everything. So I want to make sure everything's where I need yeah, to I be. There's just so many reasons why. Like, It's like one, one of the lessons I learned as a commercial pilot is like you don't need to know the answer, but you need to know where to find That's it. That's right. And we all have these portals in our hands to get the answer instantly. Yep. So if you upload your operations agreements or any important documents or policies or whatever. And you can make that instantly accessible from a phone. Right. Um, super valuable. Like you don't need to go searching. You just can pull it it's up. There. Right. It's right there. There's no excuse. Uh, okay. What? Okay. This is the, this is the, the last question you're ready for. It? It's a doozy. Ready. <laughs> Get ready. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Ooh. All the memories of you, you're working your restaurants gone with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Oh, that's a loaded one. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> Family comes before everything. One. Treat others with love and respect. Two. Live, love, and share your culture. I love it, man. This has been a great time uh, talking with you, learning your story, sharing, or just making an example of you. It's been a blast. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Keith Saracen called you out. Who do you respect and admire in this industry? And if there were a guest on the show tomorrow and I published it, you'd be listening to that episode. I think someone who I'd love to hear more about their story is my good bud, uh, George Bizanson at an Earth's Harvest. Okay, George, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And... How can we connect with you if we're interested in joining your team or if we just want to check out your restaurants or follow you on social? What's the best way to connect? The best way is definitely through social media platforms. Uh, you can find me at Chef Chris Vio or my businesses, Greenleaf Milford, Culture Milford, or Ansem NH. Oh, my God. And I just realized um, that we never talked about how winning Top Chef recently, <laughs> like real recent, like like this past couple, like it was last fall, right? But uh, they, that episode just aired recently, didn't it not? Yes. Oh, so you're talking about winning one of the challenges. One of the challenges. I, yeah, I didn't win the whole oh, season. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> my bad. I, thought for some reason, I saw something in my research, yeah. but how did that ex- that exposure help your business? Uh, it was massive. I mean, ever since the news was announced, I think this was back in March, April yeah. of 20, 2021, yeah, it was announced that I was competing on the show, um, having that outreach and the support of uh, the network behind Top Chef. Season 18. Massive. Season right? 18, yeah. Go, go check it out. That's right. He's, he's there. Uh, Chris, thank you so much, man. Of course, it was uh, a pleasure, man. The, the, the pleasure was mine, and there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. That's right. Cheers. <laughs> there we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Chris Vio. If you guys enjoyed today's episode and you want to uh, pull back the layers, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 815. We'll have a summary of today's discussion over there, as well as a link to any tools or services recommended 
during the conversation. Again, that's 815. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 815. So lots of cool things happening uh, and, and coming together on the horizon for Restaurant Stoppable Network. Uh, this week is a kind of a quiet week, but I do have some things coming up in the future. Today, as this episode goes live, Matt Plapp is joining us live in the network to reflect on his episode that went live last week, which was all about using your customers or, or developing a, a database uh, with your customers and developing a relationship and channels of communication with your customers. And that's all in that episode that went live a couple weeks ago. Matt's joining us this morning as a matter matter of fact, at 10 a.m. So if you're listening to this early and you want to come hang out, maybe as you're listening to this right now, we are live in the network. Head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com, join the network, and then go to the events tab and come hang out with us. I can't wait to meet you. And um, yeah, if you're interested in in basically uh, adopting Matt's practices or hiring Matt, this is a really great time to meet him and ask your questions and get a demo of what he does. Uh, lots of other cool things happening in the network. Uh, the, the plan for me and the content in the network is to kind of follow my journey of opening my own restaurant and also serving the people who are in the network with the challenges they're facing. So if you want to have access to me and the people in my network, then literally come join the network and I can help. I can start making content around your pain points, around your challenges. We can do this together and I want to bring you guys on this journey with me. Uh, next month, we're going to be focusing a lot on business planning and strategy. So if that's interesting to you, I highly recommend you create a a profile and be a part of the conversation. And we also have the Restaurant Unstoppable Network Book Club that is popping off this month. Uh, We are having our second meeting on Monday, the first Monday of every month we meet. uh, And we meet three times a quarter. We go over one book in the quarter and we're, we're reading atomic habits right now. And I think that success in your business starts with success in your life. And if you can get into habits and routine, daily habits, daily routine, that is the framework, the, the, the foundation of becoming unstoppable. So if that is of interest to you, be sure to come join the network, join the book club. And this book club is different because we're not just trying to read the books. We're reading the books and then we're, we're implementing these books, the, the lessons from these books in our life. And that's, that's kind of the idea behind this book club what separates this book club from other book clubs is it's not just reading the book it's really holding each other accountable in in applying these lessons to our business to our lives and becoming unstoppable all right guys that's it for today thank you so much for hanging out this long until next time peace out